Welcome to the OBG Med Student Podcast. This podcast is designed for medical students that are on their OB-GYN clerkship, and we cover a variety of different topics that are mostly the educational topics as outlined at apgo.org backslash students. Today, we're going to be covering educational topic number eight, which covers maternal fetal physiology, and this is also expounded upon in your Beckman and Ling 8th edition textbook, chapter five. We have a guest today. This is Dr. Jamie Maines. Dr. Maines is a MFM physician here at the Hershey Medical Center and will be walking us through the case and answering some questions. So welcome, Dr. Maines. Thank you. All right, so the way we like to do this is we start by reading the case and then we will go through question by question um, and have a discussion. Okay. All right, so this is a case of a patient who is 32 years old. She's a G1P0, and she's presenting to you for her new prenatal visit. She is a nurse in the dialysis unit, and she's in excellent health. She's a former college athlete. This is a dream patient, Dr. Mm-hmm. Means. <laughs> she has sent her own labs, and her vital signs are normal, and she's only gained four pounds thus far. Your physical exam is normal, and she confirms that her menstrual dates are approximately eight weeks, but she has lots of questions for you about her pregnancy. The first question is the fact that she has been urinating all the time. Um, she decided to dip her urine, and then it showed that there wasn't any bacteria, but there was two plus glucose. Why would this be? I think this is a good question to start to kind of revisit what happens to the renal system um, during pregnancy. Can you help us work through that? Absolutely. So the renal system in pregnancy has to undergo significant changes in order to filter the blood for both the mother and for the growing fetus. This leads to increasing renal flow, renal blood flow, which then leads to increasing urine output as the blood flow goes through the kidneys. While in pregnancy, there are several reasons why women have to urinate frequently. Some of them have to do with the fact that the blood volume is increasing significantly, but the other has to do with compression of the bladder by the growing fetus, the growing uterus, and just an overall smaller bladder volume as the fetal head compresses in the area of the bladder. The bladder vascularity is going to increase as well during pregnancy as much of the vascularity in the maternal system does. And this can cause microscopic hematuria that we can see when we dip urine in the office. If it is microscopic, we tend to not really pay much attention to that because it is thought to be physiologic. When it gets to be more significant, that's when we can think of reasons why we might have hematuria, such as a urinary tract infection, which are more common in pregnancy, mostly because there is a stagnant area in the bladder when the fetal head compresses that that area so that you can have urine sitting there that can then flux back up into the kidneys, which leads to increasing rates of kidney infections. The other interesting and important thing with the renal system is that the creatinine clearance in a pregnant patient is also going to increase and that is normal. So a normal creatinine in a non-pregnant patient is going to be higher than in one who is pregnant. So when we look at creatinine clearance, when we take labs, we would expect to see a fall in creatinine clearance. This then leads to the increase in glucose excretion, which is why we saw that in the patient's urine dip. This doesn't necessarily mean that she has diabetes. However, we do use glucose dips 
when looking at patients with diabetes. We use other tests during pregnancy to detect diabetes because the urinary glucose excretion cannot solely be used alone since it can be seen in normal pregnant states. Great. Okay, so then she has more questions for you, of course, and she says that um, based on the labs that she collected on herself, she collected a thyroid function test, so specifically the T4, and she said that her T4 levels were high and is asking if she should be started on medications. So this is actually one of those tests that we don't routinely do in the beginning of pregnancy because we expect it to be abnormal. So in pregnancy with women with risk factors, we will look at a TSH, or thyroid stimulating hormone, because we would expect that to remain the same regardless of pregnant states, and that would be more of an indicator of a problem if it were abnormal. However, because the thyroid gland is going to enlarge in the first trimester due to the fact that the high HCG levels, which are going to peak around 10 to 12 weeks of gestation, have a similar subunit as a TSH, as the TSH does, and so that is going to act like an elevated TSH. So the HCG that's high is going to have that same thyroid effect, and therefore it's going to stimulate the thyroid. So when you look at total serum thyroxine, not just free, you're going to have an increase. The reason that there's not an overall increase in the free levels is because the thyroid binding globulin is also increased in pregnancy. And so your free T3, free T4 levels are going to be normal and unchanged. So really what we focus on more is the TSH as a screening test because that should remain unchanged in pregnancy. When we see higher levels of T4 in the beginning of pregnancy, we consider that physiologic, and we recommend that that not really be acted upon with medications. Excellent. All right, so then she says, I'm nauseous all day, but I only vomit in the evenings, and when I do, even hours after dinner, it looks undigested. Why would that be? So one of the hallmarks of pregnancy is what people term morning sickness. The problem with calling it morning sickness is that it doesn't actually just have to happen in the morning. It can be all day long sickness. The reason that women get what we call morning sickness is because of the high levels of HCG. This is where kind of midwives tales will tell you that the more sick you are during pregnancy, the less risk of miscarriage you have. And that is correct in the sense that higher levels of HCG are predictive of a better pregnancy outcome and lead to more nausea and vomiting during the pregnancy. This also has to do with how women get reflux during pregnancy as well. And the high progesterone levels in pregnancy are meant to relax muscles and relax sphincters in pregnancy. One of those sphincters that is relaxed is the lower esophageal sphincter. And that is what really affects the reflux that women will feel when they are pregnant. In addition, there's delayed gastric emptying, which is probably why this patient is seeing that her dinner looks undigested. The food will sit in the stomach for longer before it is then passed through the intestines. This can also lead to constipation in pregnancy, which is also a common problem due to just the relaxation of the gut. So then when you look at things in the gastrointestinal tract, such as other sphincter tones and other causes of um, constipation in the pregnancy as well would also be affected with hemorrhoids. And so you would then see patients who are constipated have more hemorrhoids, but also pregnant women have more hemorrhoids due to the increased pressure of the venous system. So then you have a growing stomach, 
which is growing for two reasons. Number one, you have a fetus growing in the uterus, and then you have a woman's capacity to expand her stomach decreasing because of the compression from the growing uterus. This then puts pressure on the sphincter that is already looser because of the progesterone, which then leads to that sensation of reflux, which most women will then have the sensation of nausea, which then can lead to vomiting. And this can last all day long. This can get worse in the afternoons, in the evenings, when gastric acid is being secreted throughout the day. This can then also even cause women to not be able to sleep very well at night because of the whole pressure on the stomach increasing. And so it is a very common problem during pregnancy for which we commonly will prescribe medications to women to help them with their reflux and their nausea. So our patient was very satisfied with your answers and she actually went on to be a more trusting patient of you and stopped <laughs> checking her own labs. And then she had her 28-week labs that were ordered by you to screen for gestational diabetes and also for um, checking on her CBC. And those labs showed a hemoglobin that was consistent with an anemia. Her hemoglobin was about nine. And she had a one-hour glucose challenge test that was at 145. So she's asking you what you think about those labs. So the hematologic system is one that undergoes a significant amount of change in pregnancy. The entire cardiovascular system has to support the blood volume of essentially the mom and the growing fetus. So it is not uncommon to find anemia during pregnancy. The blood volume is going to start increasing by about six weeks of gestation, and at the peak, it's going to be increased by 40 to 50%. This first starts off with a plasma volume increase that then will go on to a red cell volume decrease. But when you look at the components of the plasma volume versus the red cell volume, this is where you get the anemia, where it looks like it's anemia. However, it's almost like a dilutional anemia. The anemia that we see the most is going to show itself around 28 to 34 weeks because the plasma volume has expanded so much more than the red cell mass. This is when we do those labs, which will show us when the patients come back anemic. And this is when we typically will say, well, we probably should start you on an iron supplement. The reason that is the case is because the iron requirements in pregnancy increase about 50% because of the need for increased red blood cell production. The fetus is going to use about 30% of the maternal red blood cells, and then the mother is using approximately 20% of this increased 50%. So she is going to need extra iron during the pregnancy. The other um, abnormal values that she had were the glucose values, which is also not uncommon during pregnancy. So pregnant women the placenta secretes a hormone called human placental lactogen, and the purpose of that hormone is to make the mother basically insulin resistant to increase the amount of glucose circulating around the blood, which will then pass through to the baby. So the insulin does not cross the placenta, but glucose freely crosses the placenta, and the main metabolic component for the baby is going to be glucose. So the mother secreting human placental lactogen will then make the pancreas secrete more insulin. However, this insulin becomes like unresponsive in the periphery, which then leads to increased glucose levels in the blood, which will then lead to increased substrates that pass across the placenta to the fetus. This is usually why when we test these women at this gestational age, we are looking for them to not pass these glucose tests because even though patients should become insulin resistant, we are checking to make sure that they have not tipped over into the diabetic 
side where that is not physiologic and that's where we do our testing. Very good. So, of course, she's satisfied with this response. However, she does complain further of some other things that's going on. And she specifically tells you that her mother notices that she sounds breathless when she's talking all the time. She's still able to walk up five flights of stairs at her job, but she's more tired and her back is more uh, bothersome at nighttime after she does this. She's also noticed that when she checks her O2 saturations that they're normal, but her pulse is 90 at rest. It used to be 50. What do these symptoms mean? So this goes along with the cardiovascular changes of the maternal system during pregnancy. And these changes are all very normal. And in someone who is a seasoned athlete, this may be a little concerning to that person because they're usually at a heart rate of 50. However, in pregnancy, that isn't good for the pregnancy. We need to have a higher heart rate, higher cardiac output in order to feed the placenta and the growing uterus. So the cardiac output in pregnancy it's the same as in a non-pregnant state. It's determined by the heart rate and by the stroke volume. And in the first half of pregnancy, the increase in our cardiac output is mostly dependent upon the stroke volume. In the second half of pregnancy, it's going to do more so with an increase in the heart rate. And that is what our patient is seeing. By the end of pregnancy, 20% of our cardiac output is gonna go to the growing uterus, which is what's going to allow the fetus to grow. When you look at the cardiac output, it has to increase because there's increasing blood volume, there's increasing heart rate, there's increasing stroke volume, which all has to shunt to the uterus, placenta, and the maternal breast in order to make milk for the baby who's coming. Blood pressure is going to decline in pregnancy. That is a physiologic drop, and that will occur somewhere between seven and 24 weeks. And this is due to the decreased systemic vascular resistance with all of the progesterone that is running around the patient. This leads to full body muscle relaxation, which includes the blood vessels. The venous pressure, as we had talked about before, because those blood vessels are so open and relaxed, blood collects in the lower extremities. But then you get blood that can't quite pump all the way back to the heart effectively because of the growing uterus and the fact that you have something sitting on your vena cava. This leads to our lower extremity edema that most patients will see, and this will also lead to potentially hemorrhoids and then the risk of blood clotting as well. Most patients who are pregnant will complain that their lower extremities are swollen, and this is very normal in pregnancy. What is not normal is when we start to see swelling in areas that are not dependent, like our hands or the face. The other um, symptom that our patient was seeing was her feeling of shortness of breath and this is very common in pregnancy but has to be looked at importantly because you can have shortness of breath for pathologic reasons however the physiologic reasons in pregnancy have to do with the fact that the diaphragm is actually elevated in pregnancy because of the growing uterus and the elevation of the diaphragm then is going to decrease the actual resist the resting lung volumes which are your total lung capacity and your functional residual capacity Tidal volume and inspiratory capacity are going to increase, and minute ventilation also increases, and it increases by about 30 to 40%. This leads to an overall sense of chronic hyperventilation, which is why the patient's mother thought that she was breathing a little bit more quickly or was more short of breath. And then when you look at how this all plays in, the pregnant state is a state of chronic respiratory alkalosis. There's 
greater minute ventilation, which means that the PaO2 is increasing, but on the other side, that's going to mean that the PaCO2 is decreasing. In order to compensate for this, the kidneys are working extra hard, so they secrete more bicarbonate, and that's why the maternal pH doesn't change. Your O2 saturations in pregnancy are going to remain normal because you need to increase oxygen consumption, you need to get that oxygen through to the placenta, and the actual increase in minute ventilation is going to allow that to happen. Now for her back pain, when you think of a growing uterus, your center of balance is, is kind of kicked off to the front, and women tend to get lordosis in pregnancy. The lordosis causes the curvature of the spine, which can lead to significant pain, which then gets magnified by the fact that there are hormones that are released, progesterone and relaxin, which are meant to loosen up joints and ligaments in anticipation of carrying a gravid uterus and in anticipation of delivery. And so reassurance is what's necessary during these times to let patients know that this back pain is not harmful and that it is actually kind of preparing them for what's to come for delivery. Wow, that is insane. It is absolutely amazing to me, despite how many years we've done this, that the body can make these adaptations at the time of pregnancy. Absolutely phenomenal. And thank you so much for eloquently describing these changes for us. Um, this has been immensely helpful. Um, we look forward to having you back again, Dr. Mays. Thank you. I would love to come back. <laughs>